Welcome to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Our focus is the novel coronavirus. I'm Josh Sharfstein, a faculty member at Johns Hopkins and also a former secretary of Maryland's health department. Our goal with this podcast is to bring evidence and experts to help you understand today's news about the novel coronavirus and what it means for tomorrow. If you have questions, you can email them to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu for future podcast episodes. Today, Stephanie Desmond talks to Megan Davis, a veterinarian and scientist at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. This coronavirus is a zoonotic disease, which means it started in an animal, in this case, a bat. They talk about the rise of infectious diseases that emerge from animals and what is being done to prepare for future zoonotic diseases. And they also discuss whether your pets are safe. Let's listen. Today I'm here with Megan Davis, a veterinarian and scientist based at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Thank you for joining me. I'm delighted to be here. On this episode, we're gonna talk about this coronavirus, which is what we call a zoonotic disease. Could you first define what a zoonotic disease is? Absolutely. So a zoonotic disease is one that comes from animals and jumps into the human population and causes disease. So we think about things like salmonella that you can get from a foodborne route as being potentially a zoonotic kind of transmission. What makes COVID-19 as a disease and the SARS-CoV-2 virus zoonotic is that When we look at the genetic code of the virus, it looks a lot like coronaviruses that we see in bats. And epidemiologically, we know that when we first saw this disease emerge in Wuhan, China, that there was a linkage to a live animal market. And this is actually something that we've seen with other diseases, including other diseases in the coronavirus family, like the first SARS and also MERS. So... My understanding is that most known infectious diseases and 75% of all new diseases originate from animals. Correct. And the reason that we see so many of the new diseases come from animal reservoirs is in part because we've known about the human ones for a very long time. Our human population is very social. We interact a great deal. That's actually one of the issues that we have with the current COVID-19 pandemic is that we transmit it very easily because we are so social and we connect so much. So as a result, most of the new ones are coming out of places where we haven't looked. And that can be driven in part by increased contact between human populations and often wild animal populations. And the reason for this is, you know, our population as as humans on this planet is growing. And so we've needed to move into places where perhaps humans weren't really well established before. And that sets up connections between these wild animal reservoirs and the human population. So really, I guess the fact that we have so many billion people billions of people living on this planet, and we've overexpanded our cities, I guess, into sort of previously forested areas. This growth is why we're se- we seem to be encountering these more often? Yeah, that's one way. Another way is, is simply that because we have just more people, that's sort of 
by random chance, if an event is what we call stochastic, if it occurs sometimes and you can't always predict exactly when it occurs, the more times you flip the coin, the more likely it is you're going to get lick ahead. Uh, it's not that common. I don't want to equate this with a 50-50 chance, um, but certainly that's another aspect to it. And this kind of emergence scenario is called a spillover event, where it comes out of the wild animal population and into the human population. It's something that we've been thinking about for a long time. And increasingly in the last several decades, there has been additional money and resources placed in order to predict the next pandemic. Not necessarily say, oh, it's gonna start on this date and it's going to be this virus, but instead to understand the spectrum of diseases that are out there in the wild animal population. And so there was a, a very good set of projects, Predict One and Predict Two, that were funded by USAID and other funders that helped support a really interesting transdisciplinary team of researchers, including veterinarians, to go into these wild animal populations and capture the animals humanely, sample them, test them for new viruses, and this was a catch and release because wild animal populations are part of an ecosystem and it's really, really critical not to disrupt an ecosystem. Some of the animals you capture might be species that are more rare. And so they just made a rule that every animal they caught, they just, they collected the samples and then released the animal back into the, the wild animal population. And so they were able to identify quite a few new viruses, including some coronaviruses out of this project. And this helps us understand a little bit faster when we do see a new virus that it may have an origin that's related to animals. And if we know sort of globally where we see these viruses popping out of the wild animal populations, then we're better able to understand where we need to target our surveillance. So we, we will know better where to look for the next viruses. But we didn't see this one. We didn't sample this one. Not this one exactly, but other coronaviruses were identified in terms of um, both in animals and bats, and then also in people through serologic testing who had contact with places where the bats might be found. So we saw evidence that there were at least these micro spillovers of similar kinds of viruses previously. So this COVID-19, we think it started in bats, it may have gone into pangolins, and then into humans. Should we start worrying yet about sort of COVID-2 coming along soon? Well, we always worry about virus evolution. I think that right now our focus should be on response to our current virus and providing researchers the tools they need to identify if there are any changes or strain-based differences that could be important for us to pay attention to as this plays out over you know, months or, or longer. We certainly hope it doesn't go that long, but you know, that's something that we have to be prepared for as researchers and also as government providers and healthcare workers. One of the interesting things about um, this particular virus is that we do see some limited evidence that it might be able to infect certain other kinds of animals. So there have been a couple of studies that have been done. These have been done by 
federal institutes for animal health in China and now Germany looking at animals that are kept in a laboratory. And they have infected them with SARS-CoV-2 and found that there are many species that seem to be resistant. So among those that seem to be resistant are like pigs and chickens, which is great in terms of the food supply, something else we sometimes worry about with coronaviruses. But we do see that ferrets, which are kind of known animal models for influenza, and maybe cats also can be susceptible to this virus. Now, keep your pets. <laughs> the, the recommendations right now are simply to keep your distance a bit if you are diagnosed with COVID-19, because we want to preserve the health of everyone in the household, and that includes all the human and animal household members. Now, the good news is we don't think that pets are very likely to get much or any disease if they are actually exposed to and infected with SARS-CoV-2 virus. But just out of an abundance of caution, since we don't really know this virus very well yet, I think it's always a good idea just to, to, to play it safe. So particularly cats or our dogs as well? So this was particularly cats, and dogs were shown to be more resistant. There have been a couple of cases that were published um, that had been identified in Hong Kong, and these were dogs that were not showing any symptoms, but they were in contact with someone who had COVID-19 disease, and they were able to detect virus shedding from the animals. And we don't really think the animals are likely to be very involved in transmission. We think human to human is the major route of transmission. But I'm sure people are a little bit worried about that. But thankfully, the dogs do seem to be relatively resistant, and we only have these couple of case reports. I do have to say, given the number of people globally who've been infected, if there was a strong chance that our pets could become infected and symptomatic, we on the veterinary side would likely have seen an uptick in disease. And so far, we haven't seen that, which is great news for everybody. Our pets are so important to us, and they're so important to our mental health during this time of crisis. Well, I saw a report out of the Bronx Zoo, I think it was, where some of the tigers were infected. Were you surprised to see that? Well, given that the report had just come out of China at the time from their Institute of Animal Health that they were able to infect cats, it was a little bit disappointing. <laughs> it looks like our great cats might also be part of this you know, cycle. The assumption is, and we haven't yet confirmed this, but the assumption is that maybe there was an animal keeper who was shedding the virus and that's how the great cats got exposed. And so the first cat, the first um, tiger to be exposed was Nadia at the Bronx Zoo. And they also identified a number of other tigers and lions that had really super mild symptoms. They just had a little bit of a cough. But of course, if you are keeping great cats in a big zoo collection that's very prestigious, you pay very close attention to their health. And so what you know might otherwise have been just a monitor and observe and make sure they get better, they wanted to do a little more testing and, and check that out. And what we're doing on the animal side, and I think this is a really important point because I've seen just a little bit of social media about this, and, and I think people don't always understand, we are not on the veterinary side using any of the healthcare worker resources for testing 
for COVID-19 virus in humans in order to do very targeted, very selective testing of animals in the United States. So this all goes through veterinary laboratories and everything is actually um, federally controlled so that if I'm in practice, which right now I'm not, but if I were in practice, I would have to seek consultation with the United States Department of Agriculture in order to identify if the case met certain criteria in order to be tested. The other piece of good news here is that because this is a reportable disease, meaning you have to notify the World Organization for Animal Health if you have an animal that is positive, there will be complete transparency on this. And so there's no worry that, you know, some people are doing testing and kind of hiding it. That's, that's not the way this works. <laughs> I wanted to go back to something you you talked about that you are testing. Uh, they've been testing bats and uh, seeing what kind of viruses they have. Is it possible that that work could have caused the spread of this virus? Oh, very unlikely. So the Predict project was um, run in large part by this this core group of wildlife veterinarians who are also infectious disease experts, and they used complete protection when they were working with these animals. And that means protection in the field, protection in the lab, and, you know, biosecurity and biocontainment protocols throughout. So it's not, not at all likely that that would happen. Are we going to see more of these infections? I think that we on the infectious disease epidemiology side who do this kind of one health work where we're looking at the intersection of humans, animals, and the environment, including ecosystems, have been worried that another pandemic is coming for a long time. And we've seen previous kind of incursions, spillover events. As I said, SARS and MERS are just two examples. Ebola is another good example, although I'm putting good in air quotes here, not good for us as humans. <laughs> Maybe somewhat useful to the, the virus, but not, not good for us. And so I think that these pandemics are sort of here to stay in a way. And our goal is to really mitigate them and try as much as we can to prevent. So to learn what we can during crises like this one and then apply them so that we develop robust surveillance systems, excellent reporting systems. And we already have some very good surveillance and reporting. I think what COVID-19 shows us is that just that wrong virus, that virus that has in, in this case, I think that nuance of very good human-to-human -human transmission, it's very easy for it to be transmitted. We know that there is at least some airborne droplet-based transmission, as well as surface or contact touch-based transmission, that that's kind of ideal for, for a social species like, like Homo sapiens, like humans. Megan Davis, this was fascinating. Thank you so much for joining me. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Please send questions to be covered in future podcasts to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. This podcast is produced by Josh Sharfstein, Lindsay Smith-Rogers, and Lamare Morales. Audio production by Niall Owen-McCusker and Spencer Greer, with support from Chip Hickey. Distribution by Nick Moran. Thank you for listening.